0: Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. The Desideratum podcast celebrates stories, the art of telling, and the journey of listening. With narrator Teresa Bakken and her author, artist, and wordsmith friends. Episode 30 You're about to meet author Brienne Moore, whose new novel, A Bright Young Thing, is set in 1931 England. It's about a young woman navigating old family secrets and finding a path to her own independence. She's witty, clever, and tenacious. The character, Astra Davies, has been pestering the imagination of Brienne Moore for 20 years. It's amazing to me that there's, there's an idea that just kind of won't let you go. Right. Mm-hmm. That you, that you had this idea in your youth, really, as a college student, I don't know, that kept coming to you, I guess, is, is, kind of fascinating, right? That that's how the mind of an author can work. That the idea of her, even if it wasn't, even if it wasn't ready 20 years ago, the idea of her and her character, you know, sort of lived with you until you were ready to write that story,
1: yeah, I loved the character. I just wanted her story to be told. I just, I loved her so much. I think that's something that happens with a lot of authors. You know, we just—they are our creations, our characters, and you know, even when they're—they've got their flaws and things that are annoying about them, you—you you do love them. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're yours. You know, yeah, your yeah. your book children. So, you no, know, it's it's hard to. It, And some of them stick with you more than others, I think.
0: Yes, it was compelling to you. Well, Mm -hmm. so one of the things that I really enjoyed about this story is this idea of secrets. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Keeping secrets. You know, there's family secrets, there's personal secrets, there's friend secrets. And a lot of the story to me is about kind of getting to the truth.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of it too is... It's that, that aspect of growing up and especially learning things about your family and your parents, you know, you kind of go through your childhood and there are so many things that you don't know. Yeah. So that was a lot of what I was kind of going for with that, where, you know, she, she was having her blinders taken off in a lot of ways as she was catapulted into actual adulthood from this sort of childlike state that she'd been in for pretty much her whole life before that. And, and the realization that she'd been in that state and this sort of, you know, you, you're an adult now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because when you start with a tragedy, you begin with her becoming an orphan. And I wasn't sure how old she was, you know, as the constable is coming and giving her the bad news about her parents have been in an accident. Um, I actually, like when I realized she was, she was a young adult, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you do create kind of a sense of her in a state of childhood or in a state of innocence. You know, she's not really needing to be responsible for anything; things are just sort of taken care of for her. And then you kind of peel back these—you know—her becoming an adult happens. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but that's really—it's true. It is kind of a growing up story, regardless of her age. It's her becoming um, her own person
1: yeah and I mean the fact that she is sort of she does sort of start to come to adulthood a little late is not unusual for the time and especially for young women of her class they would have been very much kept in this sort of you know like mummy and daddy will take care of everything mm. until we pass you off to a husband who will take care of everything so you had a lot of women back then just sort of Wandering through life, just you know, kind of like having no idea of how to take care of themselves or you know, do basic adulting in any way, not knowing what things cost. Right.
0: You are in a period of time, there's very limited roles for women, but the love interest in this story that's one of my favorite scenes actually where he challenges something and that's later in the book. I don't want to give any spoilers to the book, but he does, he does at one point challenge her to not fall back into dithering helplessness, uh, even, even, even as a facade to be who she is capable of being, Mm -hmm. um, which made me like him even more, of course.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He may be slightly (laughs) anachronistic, but I couldn't bear to make him a misogynist like he probably would have actually been back then. I mean, sometimes just kind of have to pull things forward. Yeah. He's a, he's a good guy. He was, he was fun to write too. Yeah. It was, it was an interesting time for women, the 1930s and, and the 1920s sort of the interwar period was a really fascinating time as far as women's history, because, you really, you had a lot of women experiencing greater freedoms than they ever had before. They got the vote in many countries. They were, and the, so they started to make themselves heard more politically. Yes. You had the first female cabinet ministers on both sides of the Atlantic. You, you know, women were starting to push back, even in small ways, like um, swimming pools used to be segregated and women started pushing back against that and saying like, like, no, like everybody just spun together. What's the big deal? And clothing got sexier. You know, the bathing suits got skimpier. They were like, why should we have to cover everything up? This is ridiculous. They were entering the workforce in larger numbers, and that was no longer viewed as so shameful. So they were really stretching their wings in a lot of ways. And so it was, it was really interesting. But there was still very much that expectation that once you got married, you would be a housewife and raise children. So they were kind of, they were getting out in the world more, but then just getting sucked back into the home afterwards. And it was the sense of like, well, now what? (laughs) You know, I had all this freedom when I was young and in my early 20s. And, you know, I had this economic freedom and personal freedom. And now I'm just stuck in a house being told like, oh, but look, you have a vacuum cleaner now. That's exciting. (laughs) <laughs> Your grandma didn't have a vacuum cleaner. So, you know, it was, there was a lot of push-pull for women at that time that I know was very challenging for a lot of them. It's, it was very similar to what we saw after the Second World War, where women were told, uh, you know, go back home and raise kids now. And it happened after the First World War, too.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting to think about that time period as a as a pivotal moment. That that was a point where women first were making progress, stretching their wings, I think is how you just said it. I haven't thought about that, but almost every female that you've written into this story in some way is figuring out how to do something more.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Right. Like uh even the darker characters are kind of trying to manipulate their lives, right? Like trying to make their own, their own things happen for themselves. When did you decide that this was the time period that was really right for you? Was that all the way back 20 years ago too? Like, did you know this particular part of British history was where you wanted to be a storyteller?
1: Uh, well, so I've always been very interested in uh, British history and the, the early 20th century when was, was especially interesting to me. Growing up, I was super into the Edwardian period To the point where I would actually make Edwardian clothes for my Barbie dolls and things to like play Mm. out stories when I was a little kid. I grew up in a British household. My father's English and my parents were really into watching like British television shows on PBS and stuff. So alongside of my interest in history, I was also growing up watching um, like the Poirot mysteries that are set in the 1960s. And the Jeeves and Worcester shows, which were are, are also set in like the 20s, 30s. And I really loved the period, just from a stylistic point of view.
0: I love that you can go all the way back to like what your parents watched on PBS as a child and think like that is where my sense of storytelling came from. <laughs> I think that's so true. I remember pretending with an accent, you know, like playing around with my friends because I would watch enough of that that style of PBS show with my mother, yeah. that it would be it would be entertaining to me to pretend that, but our pretend play really does shape who we become, oh isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and what we find entertaining, you know that to ask you about where it came from that you could go back to that that point when you were a little girl and decided these are great stories.
1: There was also so a lot of a lot of stories that are set in the 1930s. They focus on like the tragedy of the 1930s and it was a very terrible, terrible things happening. I mean, you had the depression, you had the rise of fascism, the world was roiling and it was very disturbing in a lot of ways. And most stories and books concentrate on those and they were very important and seminal events. And I kind of wanted to write something that was showed another side of the 1930s. I kind of wanted to focus it more on women coming into their own and um, you know the, the humor and and
0: yeah, I would like people to know that about the story that it's fun. It is like opening a present. you know <laughs> even though you you start with something tragic, personally tragic, you know, her parents are are lost, and she's orphaned. Um, it's very satisfying. Uh, she is a problem solver and like, I think you did a nice job of sort of revealing these secrets and solving the problems in a way that was really entertaining. <laughs> Thanks. Huh. Yeah. Okay. That's a great place to pause our chat with Brienne, and listen to a scene from the audiobook. This is in the first chapter. Astra has just found out her parents are gone. And to move forward, she's going to need to be resourceful to solve the financial and family puzzles she's facing. This is from A Bright Young Thing, written by Brianne Moore, narrated by the skillful Sharomi
2: Arcerio. This was the first great shock of my life. There would be others so many others, in the coming months. They would bruise and toughen and soften me all at once. But this first, this greatest, seemed more than I could bear. How could one bear such a thing? A cataclysm that opened the earth beneath you, left you scrabbling for a handhold as you stared into the darkness that was so eager to eat you alive, and wondering, just for a little while, if it would be easier to simply let go and let the void take you how do you bear the silence that follows the death i stayed shut away unable to face a house that was still full of my parents beyond my door father's aftershave lingered his artifact collections gathered dust the seedlings mother and i had planted were just beginning to sprout Aunt Eleanor came from London and made all the arrangements so efficiently it was as if she'd been planning for this moment for years. Not even the death of her only sister could shock her into a torpor. Friends came to coddle and care for me, to try to lift me out of my stupor. But I would not lift. I drifted through the funeral service in a somnambulant daze. Afterward I was parked by the fire in the drawing room to receive the usual platitudes— Such a shame, such a lovely couple, and in the prime of their lives. And when they thought I couldn't hear, Astro will be quite the catch now, won't she? Appraising eyes roamed the rooms, picking up on the new furnishings, thick pile carpets and streamlined sculptures that spoke of wealth and style and a careless sort of spending, I might still be there, among the curio cabinets and cream velveteen, if not for father. One fine day in April, Mr. Edgery, our family solicitor, rolled up the drive and informed me that if I didn't make a change to my living standards soon, I wouldn't have a penny to my name by July. What sort of change do you mean? I asked, my cottoned-up brain struggling to make sense of the ledgers and papers before me. "'Economies, my dear,' he answered, leaning back in the chair he'd assigned himself, father's leather armchair, naturally. "'Economies must be made. Serious ones.' "'Well, I suppose we could do without a housemaid,' I suggested. He regarded me across the expanse of father's desk with a mixture of pity and contempt." You don't seem to understand, he said, carefully enunciating every word. The undergardener too, then, I offered, though I was loath to lose garden stuff. Perhaps the butler? Beside me, Aunt L made a mortified noise, quickly strangled with a harsh cough. Edgery closed his eyes as his face steadily reddened. His blood sausage fingers clenched his lapels. I had the disturbing sense he was trying very hard not to throttle me. He slowly rose, looming over me. The housemaid must go, and the undergardener, and the butler, and the house. He snatched a handful of bills and waved it at me. Don't you understand? You can't afford any of it. Your father lost it all. You have nothing. Those words, you have nothing, somehow penetrated the cocoon I'd been sheltering in. They tore right through it. RIP! And light and air flooded in, stripping the last comforting threads away and shaking, slapping me awake. Everything was too loud and too bright. The tweeting of the robins in the stone bird bath just outside hammered at my skull, and the brilliant blue of the morning glories stung my eyes. Something began expanding in my chest, ballooning so massively it would surely blow me to pieces. Instead it travelled upward into my throat, and came out not as tears, as expected, but as hysterical laughter. Edry was so startled he leaned away as if he thought I might suddenly be a danger to him. Aunt L, in horror, hissed. Astra, control yourself! And then the tears came. I'd laughed hard enough for my sides to hurt, but the laughter vanished just as soon as it had come, and I exploded into loud, messy sobs that utterly defeated the handkerchief Aunt L shoved toward me. <laughs> I gasped. How? Millions of people all over the world are asking themselves that question. Edry pushed away from the desk and paraded angrily around the room. The fact of the matter is, Astra, your father, God rest him, was a fool. No sense at all, that man... And then, of course, he started to get desperate when your mother... Another noise from Aunt eleanor interrupted him, a bizarre sound this time, like a goose being throttled while playing a trumpet. Edry glanced at her, then cleared his throat and pressed on, circumnavigating the room as he spoke. "'Well, you know how it is. Plenty out there in the same pickle you're in, my dear.' "'At least you still have something of worth.' "'He waved his arms at the walls "'as he came to a stop at the window overlooking the garden. "'After a few moments' silence, he turned to me, "'hands clasped behind his back, and said, "'The best thing you can do is to sell up. "'Go live with your aunt and cousin. "'Pay off the debts and put away anything left.' "'Aunt L stifled another cough and agreed.' ''Yes, of course, you must come stay with Toby and me.'' Though I could practically see her calculating the cost of housing another person. ''Sell Hensley? ''With everything that had happened, I would lose my home as well? ''Leave the echoes of my parents behind and let them become the property of strangers? ''And that was even assuming I could sell it. ''I didn't know anyone who was buying places like Hensley.'' Most people were getting rid of them. I'm not selling the house. The Davieses have been here for a century. My mother built those gardens. I gestured to the flowery expanse beyond the French windows. There must be something else I can do. I grabbed a ledger and scanned it, wishing I'd been better prepared for this sort of thing. But my governess had said, What does a girl need sums for? You'll scare off your suitors and Mother had smiled and promised to teach me what I needed to know when the time came. Had that time not come and gone? I was twenty-three years old. What had she been waiting for? What's this? I asked, pointing to an entry for Vandermark rubber. It looked like the only thing in the ledger that didn't have a minus sign next to it. Edry huffed and flopped back down into the chair. I told your father not to get mixed up in that but he never listened to me, he said, helping a friend, he called it, and gave that fool enough money to buy a 25% stake in the company. Well, it couldn't have been such a bad idea, I pointed out. It's making money. His face darkened. Not for long, I'm sure. It's owned by the Ponson B. Lewis's. My cousin Toby, who up until now had been content to recline on a sofa and watch the show, groaned. "'There's nothing wrong with the Ponsonby Lewises, Tobias,' his mother snapped. "'They're a fine family, and sit up like an adult for heaven's sake.' "'They aren't fine at all, mums,' Toby countered, slowly rising and giving me a pitying look. "'They're an old family, and that's not the same thing. I knew their son, and believe me—' This is a family whose tree hasn't branched enough. What are some of these others, then? I asked, again turning to the ledger and hoping for a miracle. Who's this Clarence Ha- Never mind that. It was something that didn't work out, just like the rest of them. Edry snatched away the ledger and snapped it shut. After tucking it away in his satchel, he folded his hands over his belly and glared at me. If you're determined to be foolish about this and hold on to the place, you'll have to let it to someone, he said. You don't have the money to keep it up. You can hardly even pay the servants. Your father was about to start mortgaging it just to keep you all afloat. Get a tenant until you can find a man who can afford to help you keep it. Even through my confusion, I resented that last bit. Was it so outrageous that I find a way to keep up my own house? And so the house was let. I was surprised, given the state of things, that we found someone. But though millions suffer, there will always be some people with money.
1: She loves gardening. She learned it from her mother. Her mother was incredibly talented in the garden, um, as my parents are, so I kind of got that from yeah. this incredible garden that they created in um which I grew up playing in at their house.
0: You grew up with the garden as a reference point that way, like your character. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. My parents um they, they still live in the house that I grew up in and they're extraordinary gardeners. <laughs> the pair of them they had an acre of property wisteria and roses and there was a herb garden for a little while and fruit trees and you know it was really beautiful it was wonderful to grow up there and have that to play in I mean it created all these sort of nooks and crannies for pretending I had fairy sprites and things like that
0: So I think you have a real sense of humor in your characters. Are you a funny person in real life? Is that something that... <laughs> uh,
1: I think you, you would probably have to ask my husband that because I couldn't possibly give a, a biased opinion. But I, <laughs> I will say that that writing funny is one of the most challenging things in the world. <laughs> kind of just hoping that it comes across. I'd say writing funny is harder than writing serious and writing tragic. Part of my research was watching a lot of screwball comedies and films from the 1930s. There's one film from I think 1939 called The Women, mm. which is uh it's very much of its time, but it is hilariously funny. And it's basically just these sort of like quick fire exchanges and little barbs.
0: You do a lot of that. Your main character is very quick witted, I think.
1: Yeah, she is. She was designed that way.
0: I think that's fascinating that you found a way to research that. <laughs> um, it's clearly part of who you are. You know, I think all authors sort of work themselves into their books, but I think it's funny that there was a time frame that you could reference because there's, it can't be straight out insulting. It can't be straight out. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I think there's some very overt humor today where yeah. it's funny because someone just comes right out and says something that's funny, but you mm-hmm. have to be sort of, Playing with the subtext of things and going around a corner to get to something where the person who receives it has to be like, wait.
1: Yeah. By the time they realize it, it's like it's past. You you can't go back.
0: Was there a moment in your life? Is there anything you go back to and go, oh, that moment changed the trajectory of things? Was there a serendipity or a point where you go, oh, that is the moment where this? Where this journey began,
1: I don't know that it was a single moment, but when I was in when I was probably about twelve years old, um, I had a really great teacher that year. her name is is Ms Adler, and she was f- extremely supportive of me writing. She took me aside and she's like, "You're really good at this and mm you should keep going with it. And I kept in touch with her throughout the years and I would tell her about sort of things that I was working on. And, and she said, you know, you're going to get published someday. You are going to make money off of your writing. You're going to, you're going to do this. I kind of just clung to that (laughs) every time, like I would get a rejection letter and say, well, let's just keep going. Let's just keep pushing this. And I just, I just think it's so important for people to have somebody outside of their immediate family, I think, who encourages them, because, you know, mm-hmm. you kind of expect your parents and your grandparents to, you know, like big you up and be like, you're the best. You're going to be awesome forever. <laughs> but to have somebody outside of that recognize a talent and say like, really, you should pursue this. I'll do what I can to help you pursue it can make such a huge difference.
0: Someone could say to you, I believe in you Mm -hmm. because we all have moments where we don't believe in ourselves and that she said it very tangibly, not just you're good at this, but you, you can be published. You're (laughs) capable, You know, like that's a very specific vote of confidence. Yeah. That's an immeasurable gift. I
1: agree. Yeah. I was very lucky.
0: You can find Brienne's novels and her audiobooks on her website. I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks to Alcove Press and Dreamscape Media. If you'd like to know how to support the Desideratum podcast, please look for us on Patreon. I'll put a link on the Desideratum podcast website. Thanks for listening.